0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, and as you turn there, let me try and help us see where these verses that we're going to be looking at today and in the next couple of weeks fit into the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Uh, the structure of the sermon that we have seen. Let me just kind of rehash this a little bit. It begins in Matthew chapter five, verses one through sixteen, with an introduction where Jesus reveals the beatitudes, this way of of flourishing and wholeness in the kingdom, and he calls us then to be salt and light in our world. The heart of the sermon is then found in Matthew chapter five verses 17 through Matthew seven verse 12. And there Jesus is explaining this greater righteousness that we've been talking about, the greater righteousness of the kingdom of the God it, of God as it relates to the law, uh, acts of private and spiritual devotion, especially prayer. Um, the money and, and things of this world, the people of this world. And last week, he summarized this greatest righteousness with that commandment, the golden rule, do to others what you would have them do to you, stating that this command is the law and the prophets. And now, here in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13 through verse 27, we enter into the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. There, If you read through this, there's various ways to count them, but at a minimum, there are three metaphors in these closing words wherein Jesus uh, calls us to choose to walk in the greater righteousness of his kingdom that's focused on genuineness and wholeness in our devotion to him. He's calling us to obedience and righteousness that flow from our hearts. Uh, this past week, Andrea and I met with a uh, a lawyer to finalize a, a number of documents relating to planning for our future. And one of them was a living will. And on that document, there were some choices that we had to make, boxes to check. Uh, the first was about whether or not we wanted life prolonging treatments to be given us if we were in dire circumstances, uh, yes or no. Those are the only options that, that were given. Uh, the second was whether or not in a life or death situation we, w- we would want artificial nourishment and fluids Yes or no, only options. But then we got to a a third section, and this section was was headed in lawyer terms surrogate determination of best interest, which in simple terms means that I don't have to make that decision right now for myself, but I'm going to let my health care surrogate, presumably my wife, make that decision for me. Uh, And that's the option that we chose. It was the wait and see option. It's the make my spouse choose for me <laughs> option. Here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers us no wait and see option with regards to the greater righteousness of the kingdom. Rather, he calls us to make a decision. His, his words remind us of those words of Moses that we read from Deuteronomy 30, choose this day, life or death. We might also think about Joshua speaking to the Israelites after they had occupied the land of Canaan. You remember he cries out. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua made a choice. And so too, Jesus says to all who hear his words, choose who you will serve. Decide if you are going to walk in the ways of the kingdom or if, you are going to, if you're going to listen to and walk in the ways of the false teachers who focus just on public displays of righteousness. He makes it clear in the words of R.T. France that this sermon is not to be admired, but obeyed. Today we're going to consider the first two metaphors in verses 13 through 23, where Jesus instructs we who are his followers in this way. He says, walk down the narrow path that leads to life walk down the narrow path that leads to life and beware of false prophets who would misguide you walk down the narrow path that leads to life and as you're walking beware of false prophets who would misguide you now we're going to need to unpack that aren't we what is what is the narrow path and who are the false prophets and what are they teaching My hope for this sermon is to answer those questions and in doing so to to fill us with a a resolve and with the wisdom that we need to to make this choice and to choose to walk down the narrow path that leads to life and beware of false prophets who would misguide us. So with that big idea in mind, let's read Jesus' words in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13 through verse 23. Jesus says, Jesus says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As we seek to follow Jesus' command to walk down the narrow path that leads to life and beware of false prophets who would misguide us. Let's look first in verses 13 through 14 at two paths to travel. Very simple illustration, two paths to travel. Jesus gives us the image of of two gates and two paths. I want to describe those. Kids, I think on your paper, if you've got it, there's a spot to draw a picture of these two different paths with these two different gates at the front. That might be a good way to think about this passage. So here's what they look like. The first gate is wide. Many people can walk through it very easily. The, the path that lays beyond it is easy and it's roomy. And seemingly because it's wide and it's easy, there are many people who go through that gate and travel that path. But there's one problem. Its destination is Destruction. In contrast, we see a different path, one with a, a very narrow gate. It's not a simple path to enter into, nor is it an easy road to travel. It's, it's hard, Jesus says. And because of that, there are few people who travel along this path. But if they would, then they would find out that its, it's destination is life. It's this second path that, that Jesus commands us to enter through and to travel. And given that, that we know that the other path leads to destruction, then we would think that entering through the narrow gate is kind of a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to make that choice. But this wide gate, it has a, it has a gravitational pull to it because it's bigger. It, you might even think about it like it has a strong current within it that's pulling us and our self-righteousness and our simplicity are drawn to it. The immediate ease that's there is alluring and it's, it's deceptive. So what is this path of destruction? Well, the, the broad path is not simply the path of rebellion against God and his ways, which maybe is the first thing that we think of. But it's not, it's not just the path that, that sort of openly shakes its fist in God's face and walks away from him. No, this... This is, it's, it's the path of self-made external religion. That's what Jesus is preaching against in this sermon. So that's what this false path is. It's, it's the path that rejects internal wholeness and all, the all of life greater righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about. It's the path of hypocrisy, of, of looking righteous, but not being righteous. And the reality is that apart from the grace of God, given to us through Christ and the power of the Spirit, we will find ourselves following the crowd down this path of destruction. I would ask then, is, is this the choice of salvation? Which path? Is that what Jesus is talking about? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that choosing the wide path that simply seeks to look righteous rather than to be righteous fails to reckon with the depth of our sin and the destruction that will come upon us because of it. It fails to see the, that, that external acts of righteousness do nothing to save our souls. And so the, the good news of Jesus calls us to recognize that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we cannot do anything to come to Christ. We have to admit that we cannot and we will not be able to walk the narrow path that leads to life in our own strength. Rather, Jesus, who lived with perfect wholeness and who was completely righteous, has died for our unrighteousness and our false righteousness. And when we confess our sins, he offers us forgiveness and he offers us his perfect righteousness, which is the only way that we will ever know the blessing of eternal life that's found on this narrow path. Now, when we respond to the gospel message with repentance and faith, Jesus gives us a a new heart so that we long to walk in the greater righteousness that he's been describing. And by his indwelling spirit, he enables us to choose this, this path of wholeness that brings true joy and true life. And in that way, the choice of paths is not the moment of salvation, but rather it's the daily decision to walk in humility to walk in repentance and faith down the narrow path that leads to life. It is is the spirit-enabled decision that we make moment by moment to walk in wholeness of heart and in the greater internal righteousness that Jesus has been talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. So the choice that the child of God faces at this this sort of fork in the road is will I follow the path of true righteousness or will I follow the path of false righteousness? External righteousness. Will I live as a true child of God or will I just pretend like I'm one? Now, that's a hard choice as it is, but what makes it even harder is that there are those who want to deceive us and lead us onto the wide path. We might imagine, if you're thinking about your picture of these two paths, you might imagine that there's individuals standing at each of these gates, almost like Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in Proverbs 9, if you remember them, and they're calling out to us to come to their house, come down my path. And so we see in verses 15 through 23, two kinds of prophets with two kinds of fruit. We saw, just, we saw in verses 13 through 14, two, um, two paths to travel, and here we see two kinds of prophets with two kinds of fruit. Verse 13 commands us. It's a command. Enter by the narrow gate. And here in verse 15, Jesus tells us, beware of false prophets. Now, a prophet is anyone who claims to speak for God, who who says that their words are in line with, with God's commands. The specific nature of the false prophets mentioned here, again, has to do with the way that they speak truths about God's law but call people to outward religiosity that fails to change the heart. As Jesus describes them, he he tells us that they are deceptive, but also that they will be exposed. I want to think of those two ideas. They are deceptive and they will be exposed. So first, they are deceptive. These, These false prophets, they are deceptive. Jesus describes their deception in various ways. He talks about what they look like, what they say, and what they do. They are deceptive in what they look like, what they say, and what they do. First, they look like sheep. Not because they are sheep, but because they wear sheep's clothing. (laughs) In actuality, what are they? They're wolves. They wanna devour the sheep. Now, across the centuries, I think you could say that this might actually refer to the way that someone dresses some sort of religious clothing. They, they look like they are religious. Uh, but of course, it goes beyond clothing and extends into any external factor that would make someone, that would make us assume that someone is a, a true follower of Jesus or a, a prophet. It could be something like maybe they attend church every week or maybe they have a Christian fish on their bumper, you know. So they obviously are a Christian. They externally fit the description of Christian, or they externally fit the description of pastor or prophet. They look like it, whatever our culture decides that that is. They look like sheep, and therefore they are welcomed by us. But what are they? They're wolves. So they're deceptive in what they look like, but also in what they say. Notice in verses 21 and 22 that they say, on Judgment Day, they say, Lord, Lord. It's quite the statement. They called Jesus Lord, Master, King. They speak of Jesus as the one who rules over their lives. He is their, their king. We might think about the Pharisees of Jesus' day who knew the, the law better than anyone and, and they could speak it very clearly and yet they were deceiving people down a path of external righteousness. And today there are lots of people who know the lingo. They know the, the Christian language that we speak. It gets them in the door. They know what to say. There are many false prophets who have figured out our phrases or what, what to say uh, to kind of slip into their deceptive teaching that gives their teaching the ring of truth. They speak of Jesus as King and Lord, but they're really only interested in their own rule, and their own power over people. If you've never seen one of them, you haven't watched enough TV preachers. They look the part. They talk the part. And they also do mighty works. They cast out demons. They prophesy. They heal people. That seems a little scary, but a quick survey of history reveals that there are many people who deceptively do apparently miraculous works, but are drawing people to worship them and not Jesus. They're calling us down the path that leads to destruction. All in all, these false prophets sound pretty convincing. They look pretty convincing. And yet, no matter how tricky they are, Jesus is also clear about something else they will be exposed. They will be revealed for who they are. And what is going to expose them? We'll talk about this in two ways. I'm trying to make this outline clear because it's a little bit convoluted. So they're deceptive. We see that what they look like, what they say, what they do. They will be exposed. How will they be exposed? By the fruit of their lives and by the final judgment. Those are the two things we're gonna think about. So how will they be exposed by the fruit of their lives? Jesus uses some illustrations from agriculture that even we who are not farmers can understand, right? So answer these questions for me. Answer them out loud, if you will. Um, Does a healthy tree bear good fruit or bad fruit? Good fruit, very good. Does a diseased tree bear good fruit or bad fruit? Bad fruit. Can a healthy tree bear bad fruit? No can a diseased tree bear good fruit? All right, we understand Jesus' illustration. It's very simple, isn't it? So the, the point then is that while these teachers are deceptive and they look like they're genuine, if we have eyes to see, we're going to find out that the fruit of their lives exposes who they really are on the inside. So think about their fruit in a few areas. Let's think about their teaching. This is often the first place we think of with regard to false prophets. But remember, they can be deceptive because they know the lingo. They they know the words to say. The Pharisees were masters of the law, but there was something off in their teaching. We might think about, as we think about the fruit of their lives and their teaching, we might think about uh, our principle from our Fellowship of the Word studies. We'll talk about this in a little bit less than a week. And one of the guiding principles is stay on the line. The line is God's Word. We don't want to go above God's Word and add to it. And we don't want to go below God's Word and take away from it and not emphasize what it emphasizes. False teachers go above the line. They, they add to God's Word. They give us lists of things that we have to do that we don't find in Scripture. Or they go below the line and they avoid some of the more difficult teachings of Scripture. False prophets limit our sphere of responsibility. They ask questions like, well, and who is my neighbor Jesus? They don't seek to do good to all people. Rather, they just seek to not do evil to people. They aim at our behavior, not at our hearts. While their teaching is not the only fruit that exposes them, it's probably not even the easiest one to spot. So, the second fruit is their character. The, the, the character that of, of these teachers reveals them. The, the character Jesus is speaking of here in the Sermon on the Mount is nothing that you can fake. Think about the most sophisticated currency in the world that you could ever imagine. You can get close to making a counterfeit, but, but it's not going to work. And the true righteousness of this sermon is only a fruit of the gospel and the Spirit working in us. You can't fake it. In fact, we might look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 as a, a good list of the kind of character that's found in true prophets and true followers of Jesus. Are those who would lead us people who are marked by love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If they're marked by those things, then they're pro- they, there's a good chance they're not false prophets. But if they're the opposite, there's someone we should avoid. Now, given that high bar, I think we should add one more fruit of character, and it's the fruit of repentance. The follower of Jesus doesn't walk in perfection, but she or he quickly repents after failing. A false teacher doesn't admit weakness or failure or need, but the follower of Jesus knows how to say, I failed, I sinned, I was wrong, I need help. We're not looking for perfection in our teachers. We're looking for humble repentance. We must follow people who speak with humility, who admit their sin and their need quickly because true gospel righteousness never produces pride. It's impossible. So false prophets will be revealed by the fruit of their lives, seen in their teaching and their character. But finally, one other way we can find fruit in their lives is their influence, their influence. And here I'm thinking primarily about their followers. What kind of disciples do they produce? That's the fruit of a teacher, isn't it? The fruit of a teacher are the people that follow them. The Pharisees, Jesus said, found followers and made them twice as much children of hell as they were. It's quite the indictment. You can spot a false teacher by the weakness of conviction or character in their followers. By the ruthlessness and the anger of their disciples. Really, as I read this, I just think, you know, we need to be students of the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to ask, is this teacher leading people in this kind of righteousness? Is he or she producing disciples who walk two miles when they're asked to walk one? Who practice their righteousness in secret? Who, who look to God as a loving father who longs to meet their needs? People who seek to do to others what they would have others do to them? Or in contrast, are they selfish show-offs who flaunt their self-sufficiency and ignore the needs of others? Sometimes false teachers are easy to spot. Sometimes they're not. And while we should be wise about who we follow, we don't have to be fruit inspectors, as it were, because we know that false teachers will finally be exposed in the final judgment. So the fruit of their lives reveals their character, but we also know that one day the final judgment will reveal them. And we have all these pictures of final judgment. You see that there um, in verse 19 about every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We see that as we're speaking about the day of the Lord that is coming. In the context of that day of the Lord, Jesus says to the false prophets in this passage, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They thought they were law keepers. They thought they were law teachers, but they were working against the righteousness of the kingdom found in wholehearted devotion to Christ, and therefore, they were lawless. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, depart from me. You didn't do enough. (laughs) He says, I never knew you. I love that emphasis because it reminds me that our entrance into Christ's kingdom and the fruit that we produce along the path that leads to life is not rooted in what we do or don't do, but it's rooted rather in whether or not we are known by Jesus and therefore known by the Father. What is the key to bearing this kind of fruit? It's relationship relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Relationship is at the core of this sermon. Remember how much Jesus emphasizes the fatherhood of God. How much do we make of the fact that we are children of God? It's core to this sermon, it's core to the Christian life. Well, I said there's two kinds of prophets and two kinds of fruit, right? If there's two kinds of prophets, then then who are the good prophets who bear good fruit? Maybe we should ask who is the good prophet? Because while we could spend time talking about those who teach rightly the word of God, in this context, the good prophet is not, is not mentioned outright because the good prophet is the one who's talking. Jesus is the greatest prophet. His teaching, his character, his influence, they reveal his glory and they reveal his goodness. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, he's made it clear what God desires of his children. And what he desires is that we would walk in the wholehearted, greater righteousness that he's described, that we would walk down the narrow path that leads to life and beware of false prophets who would misguide us and we would listen to him instead, the great prophet. How are we going to do that? Well, it's, it's a daily choice. It's a daily choice to rest in Jesus and in our identity as children of God, to let our relationship with the Father lead us into wholeness and devotion. And so we must, as, as Luke writes it, he says, strive to enter the narrow gate. We've got to fight against the current. Otherwise, we're getting sucked down into the wide door that leads to destruction, and so we have to strive and fight to enter into this door. And that's why I don't think it's simply the choice of salvation. Okay, I'm on the narrow path now because I decided to follow Jesus. But rather, it's a daily, moment-by-moment decision that we need to make to say, you know what? I'm not just gonna phone it in today. I'm not just gonna pretend like I'm righteous and not rest in Jesus and trust that He is going to help me to be righteous. And so we have to renew our minds every day through prayer, through Scripture, through the wisdom of God's people. These practices, we talk about them all the time. We talk about them, but they don't make us righteous, but rather they remind us that Jesus has made us righteous. They remind us who we really are, that we are children of God, that we're known by Him, that we are followers of King Jesus, that we have been made righteous so that through repentance and faith we can walk in righteousness and wholeness all our days, moment by moment. What are we fighting for as we fight to enter into the narrow gate? We're fighting to be children of God, to become who we are and to let him bear fruit in our lives. So we read the scriptures, we pray, we speak to one another, we show up to church and remind ourselves what our core identity is. We sing songs about what we really believe. And today, we remind ourselves by taking the Lord's Supper. We remember that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again and our lives are found in him. We remember that, that this and what it represents is who we are. We are people who are redeemed by the body and blood of Jesus. That is the core of who we are. And that living in that reality is how we are made new every morning and enabled to walk down the narrow path. If you are not a child of God through faith in Jesus alone alone, And if you've not been baptized, then I would simply ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk to you. But if today you have been saved by Jesus, then I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup today. And as you do it, I want you to take it as a choice. As Jesus says here, enter by the narrow gate. It's a choosing. And I want you to take it as a choice. And as we take the Lord's Supper together, that we would say, I choose I choose right now, and I choose to keep choosing <laughs> for the rest of my, of my days to walk down the narrow path that leads to life and to live in the wholeness and the flourishing of Jesus's kingdom ways. I reject simple external righteousness that tries to make me look good. I reject false religion and instead tr- choose wholeness and genuineness, this life of flourishing that Jesus calls me to, that's honest, that's filled with repentance and faith all my days. I want to invite us into a, a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, after that, I will, I will pray. Um, and then as Trevor and Joshua pass the bread and the cup, we're going to sing a song together as they do that before we take the Lord's Supper. So we'll take a moment of silence, and then I will pray, and then we will sing as the bread and the cup are passed. Father, we thank you that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he has lived the life of righteousness. That he has died to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, as we take this bread and cup, we are reminded that our hope is in you and the fact that you have died for us. And our hope, Lord, of walking in fullness and walking in joy and walking in true righteousness will only happen as we rest in you in repentance and faith. So, Lord, as we take this bread and this cup, help us to be reminded of what you have done and also, Lord, just be renewed in our commitment to live in the reality of who you have made us to be through Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.